8th chapter of Isaiah, picking up in verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thus far the perfect word of God. May he now bless its imperfect preaching. When things get difficult in life, where do you go? Where are you sure comfort can be found? Where, when the future looks hazy or even scary, where is hope assured? What about when you feel rejected or even despised? Where is acceptance always the norm? Since you're gathered for Christian worship this morning, I suspect you know who is the answer to all those questions. You go to God in Christ. But do you as confidently know the where and the why? Where do we go to find these things from God? Why will they always be found? Isaiah 8 is a catalog of attempts to get the big questions answered. Questions of security, acceptance, and hope. And it reveals that the sources of those answers are far from equal. When we left Ahaz, God had given him a choice. One option was to ask God for a sign, to receive the fulfillment of that sign as proof that God was with him, and to trust that God would fulfill his larger promise just the same. The other option was to reject God's sign and God and to trust instead in his own scheming alliances and in Assyria. For security, acceptance, and hope, Ahaz trusted in the wisdom that comes from men and in the plans of men. Many do. Maybe you do. Isaiah 8 lays out three problems with that approach. That those who live by this approach will not hear, will not understand, and will not win. Look at the end first, verses 21 and 22. Having rejected God and trusting in themselves, Judah's circumstances get really rough. They're distressed and they're hungry. And so they start to turn on their king. 
I think many of us have experienced this on family car trips. The longer the drive goes on between breaks, the more lunch is delayed. They start to turn on the one who led them astray. After all, it was Ahaz they followed. Ahaz's rebellion against God, Ahaz's plan for their security, and now look where they are, distressed and hungry. That they're enraged. You see the text uses that word. They're enraged, and that's, that's funny to me, because notice that they aren't just mad at the king who led them here. Verse 21 says they're also mad at God. They've abandoned God and his promises. They've chosen Ahaz and his plans instead, but that's beside the point. They didn't want to hear from God before when he was speaking plainly to them through the prophet and offering a sign, but now they want some answers. And so they look up at heaven and they look down at earth. But where were they looking for God? Not in his word. Verse 19 says they're inquiring of mediums and necromancers. They're looking to the occult, to human sources of wisdom and within themselves. And they're enraged to find that looking in all those places, yet God is not speaking to them. What they won't do is to look in the place where God says he can always be found. And that is why they do not hear. You can say that you're seeking God. You can say that you're looking for God to lead and direct and guide you. But if you do not look in his word, you're not looking in the right place. And therefore, they do not understand. When you won't listen to God, you cannot rightly understand anything. Look at verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The people think they have it all figured out. And what they figured out is terrifying. But isn't that your experience? When your thinking strays from the word of God, things get really scary. You see events conspiring against you. You live in fear of what may come to be, and you dread the worst that can happen. In a state of mind that is uninformed by God's word, you will never rightly understand your circumstances. And so you will never find security, acceptance, and hope. God's word should be Judah's comfort. He should be their trusted deliverer and their salvation and instead, he and his promises, this is 14 and 15, become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. Having rejected his word and his promises, God himself becomes a rock of stumbling to them. Even the good news isn't good if you've rejected the one who brings it. And this approach is not without consequences. For when you reject God, you will not win. Verse 9, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Ahaz looked to himself 
to deliver his people. He looked to Assyria for help. The people looked to Ahaz and to the mediums and to the dead, and they only looked to God with anger when they didn't get what they wanted. As a result, the people will be broken, shattered. The text says three times for emphasis, shattered as they reject God and his promises. They've come up with their own plans apart from God. They've banded together, taking counsel from one another rather than God to accomplish their purposes. But they are not God. And so it will come to nothing. Their plans will not stand. This approach will never lead to security, hope, and acceptance. When you look for answers to the big questions of life apart from God, you will not find what you're looking for. Now, I moved rather quickly through that this morning because I want to spend the bulk of our time on the alternative. I don't think we need a lot of convincing that life apart from God and his word leads to distress. Or do we? The truth is, that many inside the walls of the church, like many within the walls of Israel, live with as much or more reverence for not-God sources of truth as they do for God's own revelation. Kids, we teach you the catechisms in this church, and we encourage you to memorize scripture. We don't do this because we think that if you do, you will never have any doubts. We don't do this because we think that if we make you memorize this, you will never doubt the things we've taught and you'll never look for answers elsewhere. No, we do it because we know you will have doubts and questions. We know that you will look for answers elsewhere, including just from your own wants. So we encourage you to memorize scripture and the catechisms because we also know that within them, when you do look, you will find God's answers to all of these questions and fears. Judah's lack of security, their fear and their doubt, their lack of assurance, these weren't because God didn't have answers for the future. Those feelings of crisis were because they wouldn't listen to and believe in God's answers. That's the where of my opening question this morning. That place that comfort, acceptance, and assurance can be found is in God's word. God is the who, and his word is the where, where we must go. Hebrews 1 says that while God used to speak to his people through prophets, and even through those prophets in diverse ways like dreams and visions and fleeces, in these last days, the days of the church age, God has spoken to us in his son. That word, the testimony anticipating Christ, the Old Testament, the testimony concerning Christ, the Gospels, and the testimony by the Spirit of Christ, the rest of the New Testament, this is the perfect and complete revelation of God for his people. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So if you're looking for answers to questions about life or about godliness, you find them in God's word. 
And if you're looking for an answer to anything else, wait, there isn't anything else. For Judah, that word was in the form of God's prophets like Isaiah. But they would not listen. They were certain that acceptance, hope, and security could be found somewhere else. Somewhere where these things are offered more on their own terms. Oh, aren't we tempted by that? We know God has answers. But what if there are better answers? Answers more to our liking. Answers that will make us more comfortable, more in control, less dependent on him. So they rejected God's offer for them. But as, as is always the case, always the case, what all those not God places end up offering is nothing like what they've promised. And it's nothing like what we've hoped for. The alternative, of course, is to take God at his word. Only there can true answers to our most important questions and fears be found. That's why God calls his people. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And verse 20, my favorite exclamation in all the Bible, to the teaching and to the testimony. Parents, what's the teaching in your house? Everything that we say and do is teaching our children something. Everything we allow and forbid, everything that we promote and discourage is teaching our children something. What is the teaching in your house? Grandparents, what's the testimony among your children and grandchildren? Is it that God's word is where every day we go to find security, acceptance, and hope? Or do these little ones see and hear us looking for these things somewhere else? Women of God, among your friends and your family, when fear and doubt of acceptance creep in, do you point them to God's teaching and the full acceptance and security they have in him? Men of God, among your peers who think that everything can be accomplished by their own strength, do you direct them to the testimony of God, the true vine in whom we can do everything and apart from whom we can do nothing? Verse 14 calls God a sanctuary for his people. And that should be the attitude, the aroma of our homes. When people are with us, they should feel at peace because we are at peace. They should see glimmers of hope because we live moment by moment with hope. And they should experience radical acceptance because we who were enemies have been brought near and made friends. If God is our fear, we have nothing else to fear. If he's our dread, nothing about the future can destabilize us. When we walk with him, rather than, verse 11, walking in the way of the people, we walk securely. Walking in his ways makes our outcome secure because God will always keep his promises. Remember that this chapter began with the fulfillment of what was promised in chapter 7. 
reaffirming the judgment that would come to pass against Judah and the preservation of God's remnant. You see, Judah was offered the peaceful waters of Shiloh, but instead they opted for the the mighty river of Assyria. And yes, Assyria will defeat Syria, temporarily encouraging Judah about their own plans. This is all going to work. But Assyria won't stop there. The enemy never does. He never takes only what he claims he'll take from you. He always takes more. And so the waters will continue to flow even into Judah, sweeping away the wicked of Judah into captivity, even as the righteous, it says, have to stand on their tiptoes with the water up to their necks if they are to survive. God offered Ahaz a sign to confirm what would come to pass so that he could see that all of this was certain and have renewed trust in God, but he rejected it. And instead, God sent the sign not for Ahaz, but for Isaiah. And for God's remnant, that a child born under certain conditions would signify God with us. And here in verses 3 and 4, we see that this child would be Isaiah's own son. And just as God said, this child would not hit his third birthday before Syria and Israel fall. And Isaiah is to give this child an unusual name, unusual even by Hebrew standards for the record. And that's some pretty weird name. And this one is a meaning that speaks for itself. Speed the spoil, hasten the prey. Abandon God by insisting on your own way. And don't be surprised when destruction comes. At the same time, those who trusted God could be confident that God's plans and not Ahaz's would come to pass. And through all this judgment, A faithful remnant would endure, secure in God's favor. And every time they looked at Isaiah's son, every time they remembered this child's name, this, that God keeps his promises, is what they would remember. At the Second Virginia Convention, March 23rd, 1775, Patrick Henry presented presented resolutions to raise and establish a militia for the defense of Virginia against the British. And now, whenever we hear a phrase, give me liberty or give me death, our minds are taken right back to the time of those events. On April 21st, 1836, Sam Houston and the Army of Texas secured Texas independence from Mexico with the defeat of General Santa Ana and the Mexican Army. This was six weeks after the siege and the slaughter of a small number of Texans in a garrison. And now, whenever we hear the phrase, remember the Alamo, our minds are taken immediately right back to that time and those events. And though it sounds really, really weird to our ears, Maher Shalal Hashbaz was that kind of phrase. For the remnant. It's one of those linguistic Ebenezers for Judah. If they will trust him and in his word, they can live with confidence and without fear despite what's happening around them. This child is proof that it will work. And though Judah, like her northern brother Israel, would experience God's judgment against unbelief, the remnant could hear this name 
and see this child and know that they would persevere. It was common for Old Testament prophets to write down a summary of their teaching and for that summary to be posted at the temple gate for all to see. But here Isaiah is told to do even more. He's to write it in big letters and to use simple words and to have it flanked by reliable witnesses. God wants everyone in Judah to have access to these words, to see these words, and to know that he is to be trusted. If they will believe him, if they will fear him, to use the biblical language, then they will have nothing else to fear. Why did God give them this sign and his word? Why does God want all of his people to see the words of his promises posted in big letters so that we can understand them? It's because God is passionate for the salvation of his people. He's so passionate that even though he has given his perfect revelation in his word, he doesn't stop there. Which, by the way, is a good thing because we all know that you can have God's word as we do and you still, like Ahaz, can turn away from God. And so how does God secure his remnant in his word? Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. We are not faithful to God because of our undivided hearts. We're faithful to God because of his. One teacher hits us right between the eyes when he says, you and I will not achieve the victory of God in this world. We don't trust God that much. We rarely live fully for him. But God is solving our problem for us because his heart is not divided. And when we are finally glorifying and enjoying him perfectly, on that day we will look at one another and say, we didn't do this. God did. This is the triumph of his zealous grace. The remnant of God, his true church, cannot be identified first by their own behavior, but by God's presence with them. His passion for our salvation is the answer to why he offers us comfort, hope, and assurance in his word. It's the answer to why we will always find the answers to our biggest fears and questions there. Why is Isaiah confident despite Ahaz's scheming? Verse 10, for God is with us. His presence. God's people live in the confidence of God's promises. Remember the last chapter when Ahaz and the people were shaking as the trees of the forest shake before the wind? They should be. They rejected God and his word. But Isaiah and the remnant never give in to that kind of fear. They stand secure, though the water is coming up to their necks. Why? For God is with them. Isaiah tells us what that fear of God should look like in verse 13. Just before he says, let him be your fear, he defines it. He says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. 
The simplest thing in the world to understand may be the hardest thing in the world to do, impossible in our own strength, and a struggle under the power of God at work in us. The hardest thing is this, to fear God, because to fear God means to treat God as God. That, Isaiah says, is what will make all the difference. Is that how you treat God? As God? Think about it. Or do you sometimes treat him as someone weaker than God? As someone with less power than God? Or as someone less trustworthy? I'll quote that teacher one more time. Listen carefully to this. Ahaz and Judah were wringing their hands over the threat. And God's remnant is not without fear either. But their approach is different. The way they see it, they dare not overlook God. They see God at work in the events swirling around them and in fearing him, they stabilize themselves. Because if God is God, he is all that finally matters. The confidence that God is God is what casts out all fear. This confidence in God, it doesn't come from just a feeling. It comes from engagement with the truth of God in his word. And that's what sets the remnant apart. The testimony and the teaching, these are what, by God's strength, God uses to preserve his remnant. It uses the word testimony here for God's law because that's what it is. It testifies to who God is it testifies that God is with us. That's how we have this word. And that's what we most need to know. By and large, this generation chose the river of Assyria rather than the waters of Shiloh. In the language of verses 20 and 22, they're choosing darkness rather than the light of God's word. But Isaiah and the remnant, verse 17, they will wait patiently on God. The condition of God's people in that moment isn't safe. Remember, the waters are up to their neck. But Isaiah knows that it is good and that the future is secure because God has said it and God is passionate for the salvation of his people. One of the reformers pointed out that the frequently lowly position of the church is God's grace to us. It's one of the ways that God's people are kept low in the eyes of the world. It's one of the ways that God keeps our eyes focused on him. This man wrote, the church is almost always devoid of human aid. If we were too well provided for, we would be dazzled by our wealth and our resources, and we would forget our God. The small and gentle waters should be more highly valued by us than the large and rapid rivers of the nations and the great power of the ungodly. Christians, Christ is passionate for your salvation. God calls us to put our trust in him and to live in hope rather than in fear, acceptance rather than shame, and righteousness rather than wickedness. He reveals himself to us in his word, the place we can always go to dwell secure in his truth and to feel his presence with us. If you are fearful, 
Read, memorize, and meditate on God's word. If you are filled with shame and guilt, read, memorize, and meditate on God's word. If you carry feelings of rejection, unwanted, unloved, unimportant, read, memorize, and meditate on God's word because he is passionate for your salvation and his promises are for you. And as we do that, thanks be to God that as we approach him in his word, nothing will be done by our own strength. The Lord not only speaks to us, but he puts his mighty hand upon us, allowing us to feel his presence and growing us in Christ's likeness by his strength. I'll close with another pastor's words because taking hold of this mighty hand of God on us is highly necessary. Because not are we not only are we fickle and liable to unsteadiness, but we are also by nature inclined to what is evil. We want to go our own way. Therefore, let us pray to God to hold us, not only by his word, but by laying his mighty hand upon us.